I, I love that thrill of being somewhere else um, and not knowing how things work and being a little bit untethered to the confines of what you think of as your daily existence. I love that. It's like a drug. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with author and longtime travel blogger Pam Mandel, whose memoir, The Same River Twice, debuts today. Pam's book recounts her coming of age on the road as a teenage traveler in the early 1980s when she lived on a kibbutz in Israel, hitchhiked across Europe, trekked the Indian Himalayas, and otherwise lived what she calls a dirtbag travel lifestyle back at the end of the hippie trail well before travelers could use the internet to make travel decisions. Pam and I talk about the joys and heartbreaks that can be found for young travelers on formative journeys and how bad decisions can be as impactful as good ones when you're living hand-to-mouth on the road. We also talk about what it was like to write a book about experiences that happened 40 years ago and whether or not you can trust your memories in these situations. This episode is brought to you by Tortuga, which is kicking off a great holiday sale this month. Just go to rolfpotscom Tortuga to see their selection of travel backpacks and backpack accessories. And if you see something that would make a great gift or a great addition to your own travel repertoire, that rolfpotscom Tortuga address will automatically create a discount at checkout that saves you 20% on purchases of $200, 25% on purchases of $300, and a 30% discount on backpack products amounting to $500 or more. You know, I took a Tortuga set-out pack around the world last year, and it was an essential and seamlessly functional pack that's more or less designed with vagabonding-style journeys in mind. The sale starts on November 17th and lasts until December 21st, and if you order by December 15th, you'll get free ground shipping and delivery before Christmas. Tortuga doesn't usually do holiday sales, so this is a great chance to save money on a great product. Because of COVID, you might want to order on the early side to make sure it arrives on time. Again, just use the rolfpots.com Tortuga to shop for packs and get the discount. All right, here's Pam Mandel and I talking about coming of age on the road as a dirtbag backpacker in the 1980s. Let's listen in. Well, one reason I wanted to read your book is in part because of the subtitle that has the phrase dirtbag backpackers and bad travel. Um, And weirdly enough, those are two things that when I was a teenager myself, I'm a little bit younger than you, I grew up idealizing the idea of being a dirtbag traveler, and just being as shoestring as possible. And as we have this conversation, I'm curious to know what good can come out of bad travel, because clearly if reading your book, some bad can come out of bad travel. Um, and it's, it's, it's a memoir that covers the time of your life uh, that encompasses growing up in California, but also living in Israel for a while and hitching across Europe and traveling your way to India. Uh, at a time that feels like it was sort of the end of the uh, the hippie trail, uh, sort of when it was transitioning into the 80s and 90s uh, era that I became a traveler. Uh, so I'm looking forward to talking about it. I did most of that stuff in 81, 82, 83. Okay. So it's earlier than you're pegging it to. And oh. I met Tony Wheeler oh. at a conference uh, in the Bay Area once, uh-huh. and he was talking about how they published this first version of Lonely Planet India, and that was their first big guidebook. That's the book I used. Hmm. So it wasn't the end of the hippie trail. What it was was right about the era when that thing was opening up to 
a lot more people, but it was far from over. It was another probably that whole situation probably ran for another five, seven, maybe as much as 10 years before it became super commoditized. It was still really rough when I did it. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's funny how since I didn't start traveling in earnest till the 90s, it really seems like an earlier era. And I guess there are some differences. We can talk about that a little bit between how, what it was like to travel in the early 80s versus the 70s when Tony Wheeler was first publishing his stuff versus right. the 60s when it was it was an utter frontier even for the hippie travelers. Um, right. And so it's interesting that this is all, in a sense, has become historical. All this pre-internet travel, um, it's easy to lump together, but um, I think when I got started in the 90s, it was a different monster than when you got started in the 80s. Um, and as we talk about the specifics of your adventures, I think that will come out a little bit. Um but you were you grew up in uh, in California. Um, you talk about sticks and journey in Boston and smoking weed and, <laughs> and driving around in your car. It reminds me of like the older kids on my swim team that I was a little bit scared of. So right, right. It's like the Anthem Rock era. <laughs> oh, I, I remember it so specifically. Um, and those bands are a very specific time. So as you were growing up. Um, did you dream much of travel? How did you end up being a person who spent a lot of her actual teenage years outside of the United States? So, uh, so I was an exchange student at 16. Um, and I, 16, 15, mm, yeah, maybe I had to be 16. Uh, and um, I think I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I don't go deep into it because it's not the primary part of the story. But when but I was, so I spent a summer in Sweden as an exchange student for Youth for Understanding, and I got the fever, you know? Um, so that, I, I love that thrill of being somewhere else um, and not knowing how things work and being a little bit untethered to the confines of what you think of as your daily existence. I love that. It's like a drug. And that experience really made me, um, excited. I wouldn't say addicted to, I don't think I became addicted to it until much later, but it made me very excited about the idea of having that experience again, but I didn't really choose uh, actively to become the person that I came through the course of the book. It was very accidental that I kept going because circumstances around me, were making it difficult for me to do anything but keep traveling. And I'm I'm being intentionally cryptic, and I'm sure that we will dive into this, the more specifics of that. But as I set this up, I just want to note that I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to go to this place. I'm going to explore all these great places. It wasn't really like I had set my sights on making it all the way to India. The only thing that I had ever wanted to do was to go to Paris because I loved art. And that was about it. Everything else was very much accidental. Well, that's the great thing about this era of travel, too, is that you couldn't pre-plan everything. You couldn't micromanage. There's a, there's a sort of a delicious vagueness to the desires of your travels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're talking about getting specific later. That, but one thing that um, that I loved about your Sweden experience, it involved kissing a boy, right? <laughs> I kissed a boy. <laughs> I, I think it's easy to, to forget how exciting that can be when you're a teenager, uh, not just to be in a new place, but to s- s- meet these people who don't look like you or talk like you that you may or may not be able to kiss. So it feels like that those little kisses of our teenage years can set us in, in, in directions of places we may not have expected. 
Yeah, and and also just like to have to like kiss a boy and have him be like a tall, very handsome, clear-skinned Swedish boy. I'm sure that that had something to do with it, you know? Absolutely. And and there's a lot of, you know, you you talk about about your identity and how you saw, saw yourself growing up. You were good at languages, but you're also a little lonely. So was maybe did travel allow you to be a, exercise a less lonely part of yourself when you were young? Oh, that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think that the answer is no, hmm. uh, because of how my travels ended up playing out. I mean, there was a period of time when I definitely felt less lonely. And when I early in the book, when I meet my travel group, and I do this kibbutz volunteer thing, I am definitely less lonely. Um, but that does not play out over the long term travel did not give that to me. Uh, as an adult, I would say absolutely travel makes me less lonely. And I love the uh, serendipity of the conversations you have with strangers and these passing intense connections you can create. But I don't think I got to that until much, much later in my life as a much more directed adult travel. When I was young and did this book, uh, the, the period of time that I write about in this book, I don't think that it's that it it didn't give me that bandage. I don't think it fixed that for me. Interesting. Yeah. Um, one reason I ask is because I'm an introvert by nature, but I'm sort of a situational extrovert when I travel. Um, and not that I, w- that I was lonely when I wasn't traveling, but I'm, I'm more gregarious uh, almost by necessity when I travel. Um, now, you, you, Israel, Sweden aside, Israel was your first true travel experience, it feels like. Why did you go there? And um, what were the circumstances of your life that led you to Israel? Right. So I grew up in a very middle class, mostly secular Jewish family. Uh, But my father was very much of the tribe and he really wanted this for me. And when I graduated from high school, there was this program where you would send your kids off to work for a season on a kibbutz in the promised land, the, the homeland, the land of your people. And so that's how I ended up specifically going to Israel. Um, I was not, I didn't have any particular affinity with the Jewish faith at all. And I had in fact dropped out of confirmation because I was like, this is not doing it for me, mom, dad, I don't want to do this. And they were like, okay, we're not going to make you do this. Um, so it was again, this sort of externally applied construct and I didn't know what else to do with myself. So when my dad presented me with the idea that after I finished high school, I was going to go off to Um, the promised land for a season, I was like, what the hell? I don't have anything else going on. So I just kind of went. Uh, For for people who may not know, how would you describe a kibbutz? Uh, It's a collective farm. Um, And and they vary wildly. You know, they, they, even at the time, I was surprised that it was not just completely agricultural. There's a place that I worked that actually had a sheet metal and pipe factory. Um, One of them had a dairy they vary in the types of businesses they have, but they are based in communal living, uh, socialized services, socialized housing. You share the profits of the land and everybody lives together in this sort of communal lifestyle. Uh, it's not some like free for all um, hippie love fest by any means. There are some very traditional structures and some kibbutzim are, can be quite conservative and others considerably more liberal, but it's a collective living environment. Um, and it's sort of structurally, it feels to me in retrospect, a little bit like a college campus surrounded by fields. Hmm. 
Yeah, I actually, I grew up knowing about these as a travel option, and I'm not Jewish, um, and, and you met non-Jewish workers at the kibbutzim that you went to. Um, one funny detail about going to Israel I enjoyed is that you didn't really prepare for it. You didn't have any, any guidebooks or um, a lot of concrete information, which reminds me of how what I was like when I moved to Korea when I was in my 20s. Um, so was it just sort of a crash course in, in Israeli culture and, and uh, the landscape there? Yeah, 100% that. Absolutely. Total crash course. I just had no idea what the hell was going on. And uh, if I wanted to figure things out, I had to read to do so. So it was absolutely this like, I don't know how anything works. I don't know the language. I don't understand the politics. I know what the hell am I doing here? Um, And for some reason, which I can't quite put my finger on, I was motivated to find out. Yeah, well, it seems like there's a you, there's a lot of uh, simple pleasure, including more kissing of boys in Israel. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of kissing of boys in this book, which makes it sound sort of frivolous. But as you have read it, you know that that is not the case. <laughs> right? Yeah. No. It's it's um it's all a, a part of the um the coming of age story that that plays out. Um, yeah. And, and and kissing uh in you know is a part of any kind of age, I think. Um. But yeah, there's times it, it felt like the, you for, sort of found a happiness there, um, just doing simple labor. So sort of paint a picture for us of what it was like for this girl in her late teens to suddenly be living in another country uh, around these people who are sort of her ancestral cousins, but she didn't really know much about you know, Israel in the religious sense. Right. So one of the interesting things about being a Jewish kid in Israel at this time, and I don't know if it is still true, I have not been back, is that that idea of them being distant cousins is kind of on the nose. I like that because you are immediately included as a sort of family, which is certainly very appealing, right? You get the feeling that these are not exactly strangers. You have a baseline commonality around the sort of baseline base values. And I was in a lefty kibbutz and I grew up again on sort of in this sort of lefty West coast family. And so there's this sense of familiarity that existed that I can't say that I've experienced in any of the other foreign countries I've gone to. Maybe the closest thing like it is when Americans go to Canada, hmm. you know, which is a whole other country but we have such commonalities, right? Uh, we speak the same language. We drive on the same side of the road. Uh, you know, there's sort of a day-to-day structure of our lives that is so very familiar in ways that makes it feel less foreign on the surface than it actually is when you start to get deep into it. Yeah. And so what kind of labor did you actually do there? And and were you paid? I mean, or was, was it sort of an exchange for food and, and, and lodging? How did this arrangement work? Right. So initially it was an exchange uh, and I was not paid. Um, I uh, walked rows in cotton fields and pulled weeds. I harvested apples and oranges and bananas and tomatoes. Um, But I did some other things too. I washed dishes. I ironed laundry. It just kind of depended where I was and the things that I do change over the course of the book. But initially... My the group that I traveled with, we did field work. We were sort of outdoor seasonal workers working on the cotton fields, just maintenance kind of stuff. We didn't do the harvest. 
um, and doing uh, apple trees. And I, I remember this very specific thing about apple trees where you would use the distance between your finger, your the, the end of your pinky finger and your thumb to pull off all the blossoms off a branch so that the apples didn't grow too close together, right? Mm. You were thinning them on the tree, right? So you'd pull off these apple blossoms and let them drop. And then the fruit would be would have plenty of space to get as large as possible. So I remember these funny little things about doing things like that. Is this kind of work still available? Can a 17-year-old from the States go and, and do a similar thing uh, now, Jewish or Gentile? So the answer is I don't know. I was on a trip not that long ago. It might be four years ago now. And I sat on a plane next to an Israeli girl. And she had grown up on a kibbutz that had been privatized. Many of them had been broken up. Um, so I think that that in some ways that sort of golden era of of going there to do farm work might be over. But I, I honestly, I don't know. Huh. Yeah, I just I just remember knowing that that was an option. Even in my isolated life in Kansas, I sort of knew you could trade work for lodging. Yeah. Uh, even if you weren't Jewish in Israel. Um, I never yeah. ended up doing it, but um, I, I just... I'm curious to know. Listeners can uh, can contact me if they've done something like this recently because it seems like a really super interesting experience. And you actually did some a little bit of early dirtbag travel within Israel. Uh, you and your Israeli boyfriend at the time, Eli, yeah, um, went yeah. to went to Dahab, which is which is when I went to Dahab 20 years ago was a total backpacker um, hub, which I think was sort of a kibbutz when you went there. Yeah, it was still a kibbutz, and it was just this. So there was a, there was sort of a center where the kibbutz buildings were, and it was very it was very small. And forgive me because I'm looking at all this through many many years of memory, so um, there will be likely inaccuracies because I, I just don't know. I, I dug up some photos, you know, I went down the whole internet K hole and I found some images that you know other people had posted who had been there at the time. But mostly I rely on my own memory because I don't want the color of other people's experiences to tell me what happened. But that said, it was a very small place and there was a large, large, there was a present uh, Bedouin population that lived in Sinai also uh, and all these sort of shacks on the beach. And so you were either camping in a shack or you were just like crashed on the beach there. You could stay at the kibbutz and I think there was a hostel there, but we did not do that. We did not go there. We were on the beach the whole time. Yeah, there's a great line I left from that where it says, we'd lie in the sand, on the sand, listening to the surf until we fell asleep. I was enchanted. I wanted nothing, nothing at all, which feels very true and specific to a certain moment in a young traveler's life. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I mean, I can pin that to a very specific <clears throat> moment and memory in my travel, like lying on, lying on the beach at night, like probably on top of my sleeping bag because it was dry and warm. And looking at the sky and hearing the sound of the ocean and having this totally hot Israeli guy sleeping at my side, you know, and just having this like perfect encapsulated moment of being just having everything you could want right in that moment. Yeah, I think we, we all grow older and more sophisticated as travelers, but sometimes it's these very simple moments that sort of make us fall in love with the certain specific freedoms of travel. Mm, yeah. Um, and so... Eventually, your your Israel adventure ended, and you went home. Well, actually, before you you, you met uh, an, an English guy who you call Alistair, yep. who who you uh, who eventually becomes a rather big part in the book. He was angry, and he didn't like Americans. So, what was his appeal? 
Um, you know, he was tall and he had blue eyes and he really liked to dance and he had this sort of outsider bad boy kind of vibe, which I found attractive. And also he was genuinely interested in me. That conflict of his being like so angry and, and not liking Americans, but somehow weirdly fascinated with me hmm. was appealing. Um, and as a grown ass woman now, I'm like, honey, get out of there. You should know better. What the hell are you doing? Uh, but as a 17, 18 year old girl to have this kind of person fascinated by you is extremely magnetic. Yeah. Well, part of the tension of the book is like, when is she going to get rid of this guy? You know, because <laughs> there's, yeah. he, he just keeps reappearing. And in fact, um, you, you actually go home from Israel. Uh, there's another, um, True line from the book I enjoyed. It says, I had picked up this fever, an addict's craving for somewhere else, the high of being in strange cities, of being surrounded by languages not my own. The buzz I got from navigating myself to the right place through a system I did not understand, it was always thrilling. I wanted to feel that way all the time. So you didn't stay in California very long um, after Israel. What happened next? So I, you know, I had a, I worked at the mall for a little while and I saved all my money. And then I booked a ticket to London where I went to go join this terrible boyfriend. Um, you know, I remember he would write me these letters and I would just be like, what am I doing here? Why am I not living this life of adventure? And, you know, I was in a suburban house in the Bay area and I was taking the bus to the mall and I was just deeply unsatisfied with the day to day parts of my existence. And I chose the most extreme way out of it. So you went back to your guy in, in England. And it occurs to me, there's probably an anthology out there of like people telling stories about traveling with people who are not good for them. Um, Cause I think we all end up with a, with a bad partner. Um, but you spent some time in England. You enjoyed the, um, the museums and the specifics of life there, but then you had an adventure across Europe. What did you do? So we eventually pulled up stakes and we hitchhiked across Europe. We were thinking that we were going to get work. I mean, the, the other thing about my Alistair character, that's not his real name, FYI. Um, yeah. I changed his name. You know, I'm, I'm curious if, if he will actually see this book. That'll be interesting. Um, he will recognize himself right away. Hmm. Um, was that he was also very like disconnected and unhappy with the mundanity of his existence. And so he was like, let's go, let's go traveling. He also had the fever, you know, he really wanted to be skittering across the map also. And we had heard, and I, I just don't recall where we got this information that we could work in Europe and maybe it was farm work, maybe it was restaurant work, I don't recall. And so we had set our sights on Greece where we were supposed to be able to find all this work. But to get there, we hitchhiked uh, from, we took the ferry from over to Calais and then we hitched into Paris and then across the continent to Greece where we kind of washed up and then continued to Italy and then we ended up going back to Israel because we knew that we could work there. Yeah. Everything else was a bust. Right. And actually there's there's a point at which it's this weird dirtbag scenario where you're sort of living like Alistair becomes like a shoplifter, right? Yeah. Um, that um, that you're sort of you're living hand to mouth and out and you're sort of squatting and and the, your travel companion 
is stealing from shops and sort of finding ways to justify it. Uh, and, and so was was this sort of a shock? How did it? How what was it like transforming to this? You know, sort of bottom of the ladder type hitchhiking, squatting lifestyle. Yeah, you know, I'm shaking my head as you're as you're saying these things back to me, and I'm like, how can that be true? Right? How can that have happened? What the hell went on? Um, yeah, it was. You know, I think like any bad situation, it was a long, slow decline. And it, you know, it, it took me even longer. Like that was not the bottom for me. And you know this because you've read the book. That was not the bottom. And uh, I think there is this long, slow decline where you're like, I guess this is what we're doing now. I guess we're, I guess we're squatters. I guess we are shoplifting and living off the generosity of people who have fewer resources than we do. I guess this is just where we are and, and what we're doing. And when there's, I think when there's limited input from the outside, you don't understand that what you're doing is supremely fucked up, right? Cause there's nothing for you to compare it to, right? I could see that there were like nice English couples on vacation on the beach, but they weren't me and they were not relatable to me. And I could see that there were Greek families going about their lives, living in this primarily touristy destination, but they weren't me either. And I had the barrier of language. So it's not like I could hear them saying to their kids, you know, if you don't shape up and get in school, you're going to end up washed up on the beach like this hippie, (laughs) you know, like I didn't have any input. There was no information coming in to tell me that this is not how a person of my age and or resources and or education or lack thereof should be living. Um, And possibly to my detriment at the time I was reading a lot of earlier travel narratives, you know, like, and I'm reading Orwell down and out in Paris and London and I'm like, I'm Orwell, you know, Mm. (laughs) which I was not. Uh, And I I just feel like I didn't, like I had no perspective. That's, this is a long way of saying I had no perspective. I was like, this is what we're doing now. This is what I'm doing. I was very much in the immediate moment and nobody was giving me any information that this was not okay. And for some reason I had become untethered from my own sense of what should be right in the world. Yeah, well, I think a lot of young travelers travels in ways that they would cringe at later in their careers. I'm I'm curious about a couple of things during this phase of your travels in Europe. One is, did it feel romantic or was it just dirtbag 24-7? Um, and I don't mean just romantic in your partner sort no, of sense. No, I know sense. what you mean. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and as a corollary to that, were you proud? Were, did you sort of have a traveler versus tourist chip on your shoulder? Was Was a part of this experience thinking, yeah... I may be sleeping in the ditch, but at least I'm not a superficial vacationer. Right. Um, so I I want to say that there were things about it that were absolutely romantic. <clears throat> you know, like I got to do things like watch this regularly watch the sunset over a beautiful beach on the island of Corfu, um, and you know, there were there, we were in beautiful places, right? Like I knocked around Athens and visited the Acropolis under a very blue blue sky and things like that. I hold these memories. I hold these memories of being in this little pension in like literally a rooftop garret in Paris and opening the window and looking down into a cobblestone street and thinking that is exactly like 
this imaginary romantic postcard of these destinations. So it was not just Dirtbag 24-7. There were absolutely these moments when it was uh, beautiful and interesting. And, you know, sometimes I would be on my own and I would have conversations or I would I would have experiences that would make me think that, yeah, this is good. It's good to be in the world. Um, so I think that if it had been Dirtbag 24-7, I probably would have quit traveling. Hmm. Right. Like I've, I've been, a, I've, it's been 40 years and I'm still very much in love with the experience of travel. If that did not, it did not take that away from me. Well, that's what I love is that sometimes these really hard travels end up being quite fond memories. You know, not that everything you describe is, is worthy of a fond memory. Um, I mean, there's also these, these moments where, I mean, it's just young people travel moments. There's some borrowing yes. of money from parents. There's some yeah. probably exploitation of generosity that wasn't fully appreciated in the moment. And then there's sort of throwing in the towel and going back to Israel, which felt like, I guess, Jewish Canada, if that's how um, <laughs> it's categorized. <laughs> that's so funny. Um, uh, right now, Israelis are like twitching. They're like, don't call us Jewish Canada. <laughs> <laughs> The, but the other thing that you asked, which is something something about the so the whole traveler to oh, yeah. chip on my shoulder thing, I want to I, I definitely want to touch on that. And the answer is yes, absolutely. I'm sure that I was the most tiresome, obnoxious, uh, self-aggrandizing, uh, thinking that I was a badass person. I just absolutely had to be terrible, just terrible, hmm. and a complete snob about anybody who was not. Uh, who did not have this like sleeping in a hedge story in their arsenal? I'm sure that I that I was just insufferable. Yeah, I think I think I suspect that young travelers are, are sort of peak travel snob in that sense because you know you're still in the middle of identity construction, and that one way to set oneself apart in one's relative poverty is to be snobby about one's re- relative poverty. I guess. Right. Um. Eventually, you ended up in Egypt, and one striking thing about what you write about in Egypt is that suddenly you sort of had a different, I mean, it's always different to travel as a woman, but sort of the effect that you had in the street even, um, walking as a woman who may have been not properly dressed for an Islamic country was a factor in how you traveled. What was that like? Yeah, so it was uh, scary and enlightening, and I was not prepared uh, and it was a very limiting, you know, it made things hard in ways that I had not prepared for. And I say this as a person who was coming, who landed there after what could not be called easy travel. It was just another layer, right? And it made me very aware of what I could not do or what I was, the ways I was expected to behave in a more extreme light. This is not to say that the West isn't sexist as hell in so many ways. And, um, you know, that, that the rules of navigation in a place like the, like Cairo in 1982 are very, very different than the rules of navigation in a suburban California neighborhood in 1982, right? And it's very clear what the external expectations are for women in those places. And I just did not know, like, what do I do with this? And remember, like, I'm 17, 18. I just have no idea what the hell, right? Mm. And I have no guidebook. 
I have no, literally no guidebook. Like, I don't know, like, what am I supposed to be doing? Um, so yeah, it was, it was shocking. It was definitely shocking. Was it annoying that you were treated differently when you walked with Alistair? You know, that people assumed you were with like his spouse or something? Um, well, yes and no. I was safer when I was with him than when I was alone. Let me, let me rephrase that. I felt safer. Mm. I don't know that I, it's not fair to say that I was safer, obviously, um, you know, cause being with him had its own problems. Uh, and I was making assumptions about my safety that are probably not true. Um, so for example, I hitchhiked alone in when I, when we were, uh, washed up on Corfu, a couple, like multiple times I hitchhiked alone. I was often picked up by middle-aged men who were completely polite and kind and concerned for my safety and really wanted to see me get safely to where I was. And I was operating on the assumption that that would not also be true in Egypt once I got there without any reason to feel that way. Right. I could have been just as safe there. I just don't know. But, you know, I have my own like racist preconceptions about what it meant to be traveling in the Arab world. And so it did not feel as safe to me to be there. But I don't know if that was true or not. Yeah. Well, one curious aside is that, you know, I was there about 20 years later and to me, women travelers seemed more frustrated in India than in Egypt, but it seems like the reverse to you. Um, is that true that you felt that it was sort of peak harassment in Egypt versus India? Uh, actually, you know, the ironic thing about all this is that if you want to go for peak harassment, try being a single girl and trying to knock around in Tel Aviv. Hmm. Israel's the worst. Hmm. There, That actually, like... From the, the point of view of distance, I would say that the Israelis, Israeli men, Israeli boys were absolutely the worst harassment I experienced anywhere consistently. Wow. Yeah. So so to paint that to paint the Arab world with the brush as like, oh, I got to the Arab world and I experienced all this harassment. Most of that shit was inside my head, you know, that I'd been fed these ideas about how women are treated in the Arab world. And I could see that women occupied a very separate space from men. But my true experience is that the harassment I experienced in Israel was consistent and worse and nonstop compared to what I experienced anywhere else. Hmm. Um, was it as stressful or was this, sorry, Jewish people, this Jewish Canada sense of familiarity a, a factor in that? Was it less mysterious, but more annoying? I mean, how did that feel? <laughs> less mysterious, but more annoying. That's um, uh, let's put it like this. It was very easy for me to tell an Israeli guy to fuck off. Hmm. Um, I become, became pretty fluent with street Hebrew over the course of my time there. And it, it got to be really easy for me to be, um, to, for me to just be like, nope, not today. Uh, and I was, I could not do that as easily in other places where I didn't have the language or the, um, trappings of familiarity. Hmm. So, but I don't know that I would call it less annoying because it was, it was, it's nonstop. Right. Well, um, one place where you sort of felt your womanness was Pakistan, where you, there's this interesting set piece with a man named Hamid who seems very generous when he invites you off the train, oh. I think it is. Uh -huh. And then he's, it's sort of like a bachelor party situation, but then there's sort of a creepy detail to his, to this bachelor party. So what, 
what happened to you in Pakistan and what was that like to experience? Um, do you want to do you want to tip your cards just a tiny bit and lead me? Because that when I think about that particular thing, there was so many things that happened there. Well, um, well, the, the punchline is that his not not as the punchline, but the reveal is that his his bride who was uh, engaged yeah, okay, to was eight okay. years old. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So the thing that that I it was so Pakistan was a really interesting experience for me on on all kinds of levels again it's this place where i have no idea what's going on i understand that it's um not the west i understand that i'm very much an outsider i understand that women are not part of the daily threat of of what's happening in society you saw very few women in the streets um i was there as the um I guess they were not called the Taliban at the time, but I think they were the predecessor of the Taliban. We're starting to deeply influence Pakistani culture. And so the women were starting to show up in like the full burqa, the like the, the blue sheet over their heads. You could not see their faces. And, you know, here I am as Western woman, uh, totally, again, unprepared. Um, and we are we take the train across country because our goal is to get to the Indian border. And this man invites us home and we accept. Um, and he is indeed very generous, uh, but he takes us to meet his future bride. And she is a child. She is literally a child. Uh, and I am, I am in, I'm on this, I'm at this farm sitting with this girl, this girl, uh, you know, 10 years old or something. And he tells me, he tells Alistair that she is his future wife. And he's, 35, 30, something like this. And I just was like, like just untethered, right? Like complete, like I didn't know what to do. And, and he's talking about it. You know, you can hear me sort of stumbling over my words to try to access what it feels like to be in this situation where, where I realize like what's happening, how that makes me feel, what it means to be a girl in this country you know, and how I am like skittering across it with no knowledge and no understanding of what's happening. It was really upsetting is the most concise yet barely adequate term that I can think of to describe that. Hmm. Well, well, Pakistan was a, was a stepping stone and I, it was, it was um, interesting to see how once you crossed the border, there were so many differences, so many obvious yeah. differences What once you went into win India. And this is, I think a time maybe connected to that earlier hippie trail era where India was a sort of, of a promised land. And you write in the book that the world from travelers was that you could live there forever for cheap and quite well, too. You could see the country. You could hang out somewhere you liked, maybe lived outdoors if you're in a region where the weather was mild enough because it was a place you could do nothing for a long time and no pressure from anyone to be successful or useful or anything at all. <laughs> So, uh, so what was it like to go into India and did it live up to this reputation as this, um, you know, land of honey where you can just sort of spend very little and, and enjoy very much? In some ways, very much so. Um, and I, I loved India. I loved traveling there. Uh, I loved the conversations I had with people on the streets or, you know, the sort of little interactions I had when I was on my own traveling, uh, I really enjoyed it, and I, I'm I'm so nostalgic for it. And I know that India has changed dramatically in the time since I was there, but I still have this very, like I think very very fondly of it. People were kind, uh, and um, 
open and curious and yeah, it was, and it was so cheap and I just don't remember what that means now. Cause it was so long ago, but I don't remember thinking, Oh God, I'm going to run out of money ever. I never thought that. So it was uh, easy to be there in a lot of ways for somebody who just didn't know what the hell they wanted to do. Like you really could at the time, just kind of hang out, go get a cup of tea at the cafe, um, you know, meet some other people who were knocking around as shiftless as you were, go get some lunch. You know, it was super low key. It's like this endless, uh, nothing to do, nowhere to go, but no real reason to change that kind of attitude. It's, it's kind of awesome to think about right now, given that everything's so intense, right? Yeah. To, be, to feel so like, like nothing's a big deal. Everything's going to be fine. I'll figure some shit out tomorrow. Well, India, and I, I was there a couple of decades after you and a couple of decades before this moment when we were talking, it just feel felt like a place where you could see the most bizarre thing and the most beautiful thing you'd ever seen within five minutes of each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you have, yeah, a- I have a, I have a really, there's, there's another very specific memory I have of the day that I arrived there. And it was the first time I had seen, you know, you hear this thing, oh, there's cow, there's sacred cows, you're going to see cows in the streets. And I remember taking a, I think I was taking a rickshaw from the train station to get to the traveler's hotel that we were headed to. And there was indeed this white cow in the middle of this intersection with all this traffic swirling around it. And I think like if that cow had like looked at me, I, I think this is in the book, if the cow had looked at me and said, oh, hey, how you doing? Like in perfect English, I would not have been surprised, right? Like, like India is like, it's, there's so much going on there and the colors are so bright and um, it's noisy and yeah, it was it was intense and it, like you said, chaotic and beautiful at the same time. Yeah, there's another line in there I like where you you talk about how it felt like being a little bit high all the time and the sharpness yeah. of the night and the and light and the noise and the brightness of the colors and the spice and the food and everything felt like it was more of itself, like the saturation had been turned up along with the volume. It was like a dream where nothing made sense, but there it was. You took it at face value because it was happening right in front of you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. I said that. Yeah. <laughs> I meant it. <laughs> no, well, that, that felt true because um, I also, in a different era of India, I went there and I enjoyed it because it was cheap. But then every day, like five times a day, you would see something completely horrifying and something completely beautiful and hard to comprehend at once. Um, yeah. And it feels as you make your way north, it's sort of your travels sort of culminate as you head your way north up to Kashmir and then up to an extended mountain trek um, that was that just seemed really physically punishing, but maybe kind of meditatively or spiritually rewarding. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I think that that that's that's probably. I mean, it was definitely um, rewarding, um, and I still. This is another thing that I still think about, and. You know, this wasn't an easy book to write because there's all these difficult things that are threaded through it. But it was actually really lovely to revisit some of those moments and to think about things like, like, yeah, I was I had altitude sickness on the day that we had to cross the highest paths. And it was very like it was just which is about 18,000 feet, right? 18,000 feet. Yeah. And I was struggling to move, literally to move like my my bones were just like, nope. No, mm-mm, nope, sorry. Um, and but when I but I can still think about being at the top of the pass and 
this the idea of you know when you're up in high places above the tree line and there's some snow on the ground and the air is very very clear there's a smell of the sky and to get to revisit that through writing this book actually was really a, a great pleasure um and i think about sort of the color of the sky and what it's like to cross a glacier river first thing in the morning when it's cold and then to have all the water sucked off your body because the air is so dry because you are so high up all of those things are they're so beautiful and and you know those are super physical experiences and yeah it was exhausting and i was um i was also like full of parasites because i was traveling in india and you get sick when you do that um, maybe that's a bad generalization now again, but at the time it was not unusual. Um, so I was kind of wasting away at the same time physically, but it definitely felt like this, this experience where like you're in the sky, those mountains are high. Um, and to be up that high and, and that far away from the, from daily life is really kind of magical. Yeah. Actually talking about remembering these experiences to write about them brings up a couple of questions I was curious about is that one, why did you think of making this period of travels in your life into a book? What inspired you to write the book? And then how did you remember all this stuff? Did you have old journals or what, how did, how did you take these very formative young experiences and make them into a, a cogent book 40 years later? Right. Um, this, this story, people have asked me this, and um, this story feels like a lie, <laughs> but, but it is 100% true. My friend Alex Robertson Texter started a magazine called Fields and Stations. I think it's two years old now. And he emailed me. He said, I'm starting this magazine. I really would like you to write a memoir essay for the back of the book. And I was um, I was suffering pretty badly from a severe depression at the time. And I said, Alex, I love that you asked me, but my brain's not working. I can't do this. I can't do this right now. Please ask me again. Ask me when you get your next issue together. And, um, but I can't, I can't do this for you right now. And he said, okay, um, I'm really sorry you're suffering and uh, I hope you'll forgive me, but I'm going to check in with you again. Cause I really want you to do something for me. Well, he did this maybe once a month. Hmm. Um, and on the third time we talked, he said, did you not tell me that you went to Sharm el-Sheikh in the eighties before it went back to Egypt? And I said, yeah, I was in Sinai, but that was 40 years ago. So I don't remember anything about that. And, um, I don't know that I can write for you about it. I'll think about it, but remember how I told you that my brain is kind of in some weird space and I can't really access things. And, I don't know. I'll, you know, okay, thanks. Um, and he said, okay, but I'm going to ask you again. Um, and I put down the phone and I went and I turned on my computer and I wrote probably 1600 words for my friend Alex, which ended up in the back of his first issue of the magazine. And then I couldn't stop. It was like he had opened the tap and everything just came flooding back. Hmm. It was insane. Like I, from the moment like I pictured myself at the ferry dock at the end of Sinai waiting to cross into Egypt and thought about like, oh, I remembered it just all, like it just all appeared like I had opened a box that was in the attic and I was like, oh, there's all those pictures from 1981. Isn't that crazy? It was just nonstop. And I sat down and I, it was just like right in front of me. It was crazy. So I didn't do a whole lot of work 
until after I got into revisions when I looked at some old maps. And again, I went into the, this internet K-hole to find pictures from travelers who had been in those places when I was there and, you know, sort of rejiggered some things to make sure the geography was right and all that kind of stuff. But it was this bizarre feeling of having it wholly formed in the back of my head. And all I really had to do was sit at my desk and type. That's amazing. It was, like it a, was crazy. Yeah, no, there's parts that I read. Like there's a story about a man in a white shirt who was sort of shyly following you in a shy slash creepy way. And he just wanted to talk and Alistair didn't yeah. like him. And I was thinking, oh, that sounds like a, something that's observed in a journal. But that was just your fugue state, huh? It was, I wouldn't even call it a fugue state. It's not like I was in this haze. Like I was like, oh yeah, I just remembered it all of a piece. Hmm. You know, it, it makes it sound a little bit like a, uh, like some kind of synesthesia for books, <laughs> you right. know, um, where I was just very aware of all of it. And again, like all I had to do was sit down and write it. There were other things. The other thing was that um, the process of doing that, there were things that, that I remembered other things when I went through and did revisions too. That, that there were some things that came back as a result of just the initial draft. So, you know, I did the initial draft and then I did all the stuff that one does when one has a first draft uh, to try to package it for sale. And when I finally uh, got it picked up and started to work on revisions, when I really dove into the revisions, you know, my editor would ask me specific questions like, can you describe this more? And I would think maybe, hmm. uh, in some case, the answer was no, like I couldn't get at it. And then in other cases I was like, Oh yeah. And also this other thing. Um, so I was pretty surprised at, uh, what was what was stored up in the attic of my memory that was just waiting for me to dust it off. That's amazing. I'm not going to tell my writing students about this, Pam, because I, I encourage them <laughs> to take notes and, and to be fastidious <laughs> with their reporting. I don't know if everybody has this this skill. Um, well, I, I don't like I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it. Don't get me wrong. Right. Like, so I'm with you. Don't tell them that. <laughs> I mean, right. they're going to hear this maybe. Um, but I wouldn't rely on it now. But, you know, I had some letters that I had sent home that my mom had sent back to me. I had some little bits and pieces of it. Um, I had some letters that a friend from uh, my high school friend sent me some letters that I had sent him from Israel when I was 17. Um, so I had some little um, uh, not mnemonic devices, little things that sparked memory, mm. objects, little things to read that I had written some postcards, but I did not have notes. And now I would take notes. Of course I would. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's, that's remarkable. Yeah. I think it, it's it, insane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Um, <laughs> I, you know, a lot of it could be wrong. This is the other thing is that like, it felt a little bit like writing fiction. Um, right. is that like, you know, memory is weird, right? So, and this is old memory. It's 40-year-old memory. So I had to just trust that I was doing the best I could with what I could access. Yeah, and, and memory is narrative, too. And so it, so it simplifies and connects um, in, in its own way. And one interesting thing at the very end of the book is how, um, you know, it didn't really end with running through a, in slow motion through a field of daisies and coming back home chastened. Um, there's some a little bit of depression when you get home. Um you, it feels like you're changed from it, but you observe it th towards the end of the book. You said you wanted a normal gap year where you slept in hostels and met other travelers and kissed strangers in faraway places, where I came back to a tiny bit worldlier with ideas, where I came back home a tiny bit worldly with ideas about European socialism and public transportation, but unscarred. Um, 
So I guess I guess the question, the full circle question is, um, it sounds like your journey was a mix of happy and unhappy. Uh, how relevant is that now, and how do you look back on this time in your travel life, which was also very much a coming-of-age time in your late teens? Yeah. Um, tell me what you mean by – ask the first part of that question again. How relevant is that now? What do you mean by that? Could you ex- expand just a tiny bit? Do you consider it a happy memory? Uh, do, you, do, you, do you long for it? Do you find yourself nostalgic about it? Uh, or is it – Something that you might think of in the context of like going to military school or something. <laughs> That's an unfortunately excellent analogy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's off the top of my head. So <clears throat> I like that, it, but I can work with that. Um, so because there were such a mix of beautiful, life changing experiences in a good way and terrible life-changing experiences in a bad way, it is hard to have a unified point of view when I look back at it. You know, when I think about things like, uh, there's a story I tell in there about going to knock on the door of a house when we're trekking in the mountains of Ladakh to get some help cooking dinner because our stove is broken. And this family invites me into their home and lets me use their fire to cook my dinner and then I leave. And I think about that. Can you imagine somebody doing that here? Like that some stranger shows up on your house and is like, Hey, can I use your stove? I got to cook my dinner. Um, and these people let me into their house and let me cook that cook my, like, first of all, I was the kind of person who did that. I asked them that that's that's nuts, right? We don't speak the same language. Their culture is vastly different than mine. It's a very off the grid place. Um, And when I think about that, I feel just overwhelmed with nostalgia and um, affection for being the kind of person who doesn't see asking for help when you need it, even for something as trivial as access to a fire. Maybe that's not a trivial need, actually, access to fire. Um, And so I feel really, um, yeah, I'm very attached to that sort of thing. Uh, and I'm of course less attached to the other parts of the book that are the other parts of my story that are less pleasant. You know, there, I really did want an air quotes, normal gap year. You know, I talked to friends of mine who have done gap years. I have a good friend from college and, you know, he tells me this story about being at the train station in Paris and he ran out of money. So they slept in a doorway and it rained. And I'm like, that sounds awesome, (laughs) you know? Um, And I am not, I don't pine for that kind of thing, but I still think so fondly about the, the idea of being the kind of person who can travel so freely and so fearlessly, right? Like I was getting in and out of cars with strangers all the time and uh, talking to people and just having no preconceptions about how those things were going to go. That sort of thing I am very nostalgic for. Think of a of a person who's maybe seventeen year old years old now and is thinking mm-hmm. of their own adventures. Given your experiences in a completely different era when there's much less information out there, um, what would you tell them? What kind of advice would you give to a to a young oh. version of Pam? Yeah. Um, uh, first, I would say uh, like break up with that guy. 
um, for starters, right? Like, what the fuck are you doing? Leave that guy. You're done. Um, Get out. Don't let anybody be mean to you like that ever. Um, So that would be the first thing. Um, And then uh, that's very specific. Um, But in general, I think that that sense of fearlessness and defaulting to think that strangers are kind and helpful um, is still true and something that I want to lean into. I still have those kinds of experiences as an adult. Now I travel with enough money in my pocket that I don't, that I'm not washed up in a doorway um, or that, you know, I don't need a ride, but maybe it's, 10 years ago now, maybe more, I was driving around, I was driving around Spain by myself and I got my car in a ditch. And I had to walk into this local bar to get some help getting the car out of the ditch. I knew that just a shove was going to get the car out of the ditch, but I didn't, I couldn't do it on my own. So I walk into this bar and it's a very like small town local bar with some big farmers and overalls there and like a really tough looking bartender behind the counter. And I walk in and they look at me and I ask them in my terrible Spanish to help me get my car out of a ditch. And they're like, oh, yeah, I got you. And they came around and they helped me get my car out of a ditch and I went on my way. And so things like that are still very available. Uh, I'm not recommending driving your car into a ditch, but the idea that, you know, and again, I was, you know, I was a young woman traveling on my own. This could have gone badly. You know, so that sort of fearlessness and operating from the assumption that the world is in general a good place, which is, you know, very cliche and broad and maybe a little bit tedious. I I like holding on to the idea that that is still true today. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Pam Mandel's book, The Same River Twice, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.